If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Rachel Silveda. She is an ASHA licensed SLP currently working at, at a level one trauma center in Miami, Florida, who specializes in feeding and swallowing disorders throughout the lifespan. Rachel has diverse training in dysphagia management associated with respiratory compromise, artificial airway populations, medically complex neurogenic populations, as well as NICU feeding and swallowing complications. Rachel has made patient advocacy and improving overall patient quality of life a personal mission and goal throughout her years as an SLP. She has spearheaded a robust tracheostomy team in her facility, encompassing surgeons, intensivists, hospitalists, nurses, and rehab team personnel with a mission of providing exceptional care to the tracheostomy population. Her trach team has become an innovative concept with potential to spread to other facilities and professionals with focus on utilizing standardized protocols to streamline care and reduce adverse outcomes. The SLP-led trach team has been presented at various conferences and is in the process of being published in a manuscript to showcase the statistical significance of the research. Rachel strives to provide a constant commitment to education by providing clinical mentorship to students during externships, as well as provided support for several administrative teams on medical SLP platforms to promote continued growth in our SLP community. In addition, Rachel has curated multiple avenues for continued education for SLPs in her community, including a Badge Buddy series for quick and digestible content on medical badges, as well as an open collaborative on Zoom called Trach Talks for promoting tracheostomy evidence-based research in an accessible and affordable manner. As our field is rapidly growing, Rachel demonstrates continued efforts to improve medical SLP education with a specialization in optimizing tracheostomy care with several guest lectures to multiple universities and hospitals, as well as conducting research studies. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, 
My goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Right. Hello, Rachel. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad we are finally getting to do this episode. We've been trying to do it for forever, but my schedule is not friendly right now. So thank you for bearing with me and, and for I'm so excited. Not a problem. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to chat and see what we can brainstorm and chat about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell people who you are. All right. My name is Rachel Civeda. I'm a speech language pathologist, been practicing for about almost eight years now, um, based out of Miami, Florida, sunny Miami over here. I work at a level one trauma hospital, specializing with all the way from the neonatals, all the way to the geriatric population with a focus on the neurogenic population, trach and vent population, dysphagia, uh, cognitive decline, um, so on and so forth, language deficits. So kind of the whole slew in the acute care setting, medical SLP setting, going from working in the NICU for one hour and going all the way to the stroke unit or the trauma unit the next hour, being very diverse. But I think that's where the joy comes from it and my passion. So um yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, cool. Did you did you always want to be a medical SLP? Did you always want to work in the medical setting? Yes, I did. Yeah. And um from early on, I was always trying to get those like adult placements and those are far and fetched and hard to get. Yeah. So I actually did start in peds doing like clinic work, but doing like LTAC acute care PRN gigs on the side just to get my foot in the door until it blossomed into a full time. But definitely I actually thought I was going to want to work more like in a skilled nursing facility and work on aphasia paint with aphasia more and less acuity. But as I was introduced to these trach and vent patients, which we're going to talk about later, um, that's where the doors open for me. And I'm like, this is the population that I want to work with. So the real acute vented population tracheostomize is where my heart's at. Okay. So let's, let's dive in. So what are we going to talk about today? So um, implementation of a tracheostomy team, right? A focus team that's going to work specifically with this population. Um, it's not a new concept. It's been done before. It's done at John Hopkins and very prestigious hospital settings where they get a focus group together and a multidisciplinary team and kind of hash out obstacles and pitfalls with this population and how they can better the quality of care. A lot of research and everything is pointing at it increases length of, it decreases length of stay. It uh, decreases the chance of adverse events. It improves quality of life. But what I really wanted to like dig deeper and find is like, how do speech related outcomes look? So when I think of speech related outcomes, I think of, are they eating sooner? Are we returning them to an oral diet sooner? Are they able to communicate with their loved ones because in the long run, when I was going to see these patients, that was the first question that I was asked. When are they going to eat? When are they going to communicate? Family members and doctors weren't really asking me, well, how long are they going to be here? And I know that's a quality or a metric of hospital systems. So that's what gets most of the focus is how can we reduce their length of stay? Well, if we really hone in on that and look at that further, well, by doing all of our own intricacies and our own parts of our discipline, we can 
shorten that length of stay, we can decrease that adverse event by just doing our role simply. But I wanted to dig deeper and implement a team and then actually go in and measure what our team did to see if the outcomes were actually positive. Interesting. So yeah, that's, that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what sparked your interest in, in working with Trakes specifically? Was there anything specifically or you just. Yeah. Um, so I actually had, I've worked with, you know, many different mentors and many different coworkers to say, and you know, how everyone has their own niche and their own population they want to work with. Like, Oh, I'll take all the strokes today or you work with the peds or, and I had worked with someone who just did not want to touch the trachs and vents. So that was my opportunity that honestly, all those consults rolled to me for the first few years. And what I was noticing, and maybe it's like this in other hospital settings. And I tend to have a tendency to think that this is how it is, is a lot of these patients get traked and pegged and forgotten. And what I mean, forgotten, it's, oh, well, we found the viable airway source. They're breathing, they're vented, they're getting ventilatory support and they're getting nutrition. What's our next stop? Let's get them to an LTAC or let's just get them out of our facility and into another facility because our job here is done. We've stabilized them. We've given them a route for entral feeds and we've given them a route to breathe. Um, but really what we forget is these patients are brought to us and I think that we should almost do everything in our power while they're still in our house, right? And make them yeah. make them better than we receive them rather than just think of the outcome, like let's, how fast can we ship them out? So that's what sparked my interest was really, can I, stop I wasn't seeing good outcome. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me stop you there. Yeah. I, I actually just had this epiphany like within the last few weeks, just, it's almost like I've just had these conversations with a few different people lately and it was like, Yes, we've stabilized them. Now we're just going to move on to the, to the next level of care. And I was like, well, but, but wait, but that does, like, there's so much more we can do here today. And they're like, well, but no, we're not going to because they're stable. So it's like not our responsibility anymore. And I'm like, well, but, and I really battled with, like, I've talked to, it's so funny that we're talking about this today because I've talked to a lot of people over the last few weeks. Like, is this how it is in your hospital? Is this how it is in your hospital? Like, it's a very, and, and, and it was, it was mixed. It was varied. Some places were like, yes, that's what we do. And other places were like, no, we, we, you know, do more. We, and, and so I, I'm, I'm happy we're talking about this because me personally, I just think like, gosh, I, I feel like we could be doing more for these patients. And, and I very much understand that get them stabilized, get them out the door, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, like a conundrum. You're like, yeah. I get it, but I also don't understand yeah. it. And yeah. And I also think it's just a lack of like knowledge too. So I mean, we'll probably get to that in a bit, but it's, they don't, they honestly don't understand what we can do specifically with this population. And you've mentioned it in multiple podcasts and multiple resources is that the more they know, the better that we could serve the population, but it's all about getting on our soapbox and preaching what our role is as speech pathologists. We were only getting consulted in my hospital for them after they were off the vent and they were on a T piece and they were only consulting us for a communication board. And we're like, whoa, let's back this up. We can be working with them while they're on the vent. We can work on actual speech versus a communication board with a valve. And they could be eating on a vent. So once you open that whole world to them, they're like, we didn't know you guys could do that. So, and then they think, okay, can we get that done before they leave? Well, absolutely. The sooner you consult us, the sooner we can get moving and optimize them more before they're shipped out to their next location or rehabilitative journey. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So, so talk to me a little bit, Rachel. So when you, so at this hospital, you guys did not have a trade team or you were not intervening with these patients when you, when you first started working there. So sort of, yeah, t- take me back. How did this all sort of evolve? 
So it kind of came about very active on like, you know, passing your valve and different websites that specialize with tracheostomy education, just doing my literature, typical literature review or using resources to learn more about trachs. Cause that is a very limited topic in our, in our um, graduate journey. So once I kind of dove deeper into it and I knew that that was already a population I like to work, I got together with, um, I mean, I had built relationships in the hospital. This is a couple of years in. I had built some relationships with some of the surgeons. So I kind of started with the surgeons because they were the ones placing the tracheostomy. So I figured, let me go to the people who are starting this process, right? Um, and see what their thoughts are on it. Hey, did you know that speech can do the X, Y, and Z? Or, um, tell me a little bit about like the outcomes that you've noticed. Like, what do you do after you trach a patient? What's your typical protocol in regards to feeding them or allowing them to communicate? And it was just like a deer in headlights. They just really didn't know why I was coming to them. So I went back to the drawing board and I actually provided like binders, like large binders of just all the literature that I had acquired. And I divided it into sections and I said, this is the speech related data. This is length of stay related data. This is protocol data. This is capping data and everything. So I kind of summarized it for them and I'm like, Okay, so what I'm trying to preach to the choir here is there's a lot of information on tracheostomies and we're not doing any of it. And they didn't take it offensively. It was more like an an eye-opening opportunity in such a large hospital, in our trauma hospital, that pumps out anywhere from, in just trauma alone, over 100 trachs a year. And if you include the medical ICUs, over 300 trachs a year. So that's a big, large population that is essentially being, is suboptimal, providing receiving suboptimal care, that is a big, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, opportunity opportunity for growth within that population. So once we got those meetings kind of rolling with those key people, which were the surgeons and the directors of trauma per se, that's kind of where I started first. It filtered its way down and it filtered its way down to the medical trauma or medical ICU directors, the medical ICU surgeons. And then it was just this big conversation of like, Let's do a ground rounds. Let's do an in-service on this. Tell us what your goals are, what your thoughts are, how, what can we do? And then that basically spiraled into monthly meetings and we'd sit down every meeting and really talk about what educational components do we want to drive the educational force? What kind of protocols do we want to create? Let's go through our own regimen and see where our mishaps and our falls are happening. Let's start running data and seeing how many patients we have, how many are being seen by this discipline, and really just like fine tooth comb, go through everything and see what can we improve. And once we did that, we found, whoa, there was a lot to improve. Some like majority of these patients weren't even seen by speech. So we were saying like, not only can we have the opportunity to feed them, communicate, change their trach, decannulate them in in house, it all starts with just the consult. So if we can get one thing rolling, we can get seven things rolling. So I really think the monthly meetings were the the like catalysts because we would literally come to every meeting with so much information from the month prior and just hash it out for about an hour and a half. And here they're taken, here speech is taken, here surgeries take and medicines take. And it was so interdisciplinary. It was, it was amazing. It really was. How, how long do you think sort of that whole process was of like starting the process before being like, okay, this is something we need to address like soon. So like we kind of broke it into phases um, with, with the, we had an intention of doing research on it. So from the get-go, we're like, let's kind of call this our buy-in and our aware, awareness phase. And that took about like three to four months. So it was actually bi-weekly meetings in the beginning and they changed to monthly. And then once we were about four months in, 
and the protocols were written and the plans and kind of like what educational routine schedule we were going to take, what dates were the end services going to be on. That took another about three to four months. So we're at eight month mark. And then once we got to about nine months, we're like, oh, okay, now we're ready to collect data and see what we've done, you know, so far. And the overall overhaul process took about almost a year and a half. And I would say now it's ingrained and embedded in our trauma system. Um, and our medical ICU has a better understanding of the intricacies and the underpinnings, but there's always going to be obstacles and there's always going to be pitfalls. But I think the core concepts and the culture was changed from the beginning to now. And I think that's something that we could say was a major win yeah. um, in the year and a half span. I love that. I love that you said this because I've been guilty of doing this too. It's like just putting binders and binders of research articles together and like dumping them at someone's door, you know, and looking back at it now, I'm like, what a terrible idea. But like, I, I understood what I was trying (laughs) to do. Right. But, but talk to me a little bit more about, you know, what, what you guys found and really, you know, why you decided to move forward with this. Yeah. So, I mean, really the driving force behind it was, once we got the team together, we were just, we had a consensus and we had a mission statement for our team. And it was basically, we came to an agreement that tracheostomies are one of the most frequently performed procedures in the ICU. But what the literature was showing us is that there's little consensus about how to post-operatively manage them. And that's the general consensus. So once we had that concept in our head, we were like, all right, well, what is the post-operative management? And then we'd go through it. So are they having infections? Is Are they hemorrhaging? Are the tubes being dislodged? Is there obstructions? Is there just a general impaired ability to communicate? Are they getting pneumonia? Are they having difficulty swallowing? So once we filtered out all of that, we could pull our data points. And what we really found was once you have that experienced multidisciplinary team with a surgeon, a respiratory therapist, a speech pathologist, everyone kind of honing into their own specialty, you had improved quality of life for the patients. It was that constant collaboration and standardizing, or like I would call it was streamlining our processes. We didn't reinvent the wheel. You know, we used inline passing mirror or inline valve protocols that were already created. We implemented like day uh, timelines, like seven to 10 days was our frame to change the trach, right? That's in the literature. We didn't reinvent anything. We just were trying to streamline the care. So um, what we found is by implementing this team, we're able to return our patients to oral diets sooner change their trachs sooner, reduce infections by changing the trachs, um, allow for earlier communication. And actually a lot of patients got decannulated at a way faster rate where they would have just been shipped out to the next hospital and never had the opportunity to actually be decannulated. And that really goes hand in hand with like doing our instrumentation from a speech language pathologist perspective, getting a modified barium or doing a fees helped tenfold because you're getting solidified information on what diet you can put them. But if you also pair that with the fees, we got direct visualization and we were able to use that as almost like a decannulation protocol. So we had the surgeons in the room, we had speech in the room and they're looking at the airway. We did all of our necessary steps and they said, well, this is our last step. We're looking at the airway right now. We're ready to decannulate. So we really found that that multidisciplinary collaboration was paramount to helping the patient's outcomes. Yeah. Love that. Okay. So, so I'm sold, Rachel. I'm sold. I want to start a trach team in my hospital. This sounds just so perfect. This sounds like, you know, why wouldn't you? Right. Okay. 
I'm guessing it's not as easy as, as it sounds. So talk to me about some of the challenges you face, some of the obstacles. Yeah, absolutely. So I think really getting the right team first was the hardest part because like I, we mentioned that it was some people come, people go, Oh, that's a great idea. Let me join. And then they don't last more than a few days. And it's really finding someone that's going to be able to fully commit and dedicate to that endeavor. And the people that I have on the team right now have been with us the entire year and a half. Like they're invested, they're passionate. They are going to dedicate extra time, right? That's the big thing. Are you okay with dedicating a little bit more time to implement protocols? Because at the end of the day, our productivity and our big corporate hospitals we work for want us to be productive. So how can we still do this and help patients and give ourselves a little extra time to do it? So just working it into our day, I I was able to acquire most of the tracheostomy patients and my girls that I work with were okay with that. So that was part of my work day was to be with those patients, but also develop, develop protocols and help streamline processes. I think another huge thing was the ability or openness to change. So you have those people that are like, well, we've always done it that way. And I think I've heard this on many of your podcasts. Well, just because you did it that way doesn't make it the right way. Yeah. So we have the very seasoned and wise respiratory therapists that have been there for a very long time who refused to put a passing mirror on a patient on a vent because they didn't know what an inline was. So little me coming in to show them my videos and show them and have, you know, passing mirror come out or have an inline company come out or valve company come was a shock to them. And I had to really go through a lot of hurdles to like organize, even with just respiratory to get that into their annual comps or their monthly comps, because it's hard to train tricks to an old horse or whatever that saying is that they just, you, you get a lot of resistance and they don't like a younger person coming in telling them what to do. And it's, and I don't think by any means I was telling them how to do their job. I was just kind of sharing some, some knowledge I acquired, a skill I acquired that can benefit the patient. So just knowing that failures are going to arise, but how we respond to them and how we act really sets the tone for the future team. So, all right, you don't, you're not ready. You don't really want to comprehend this skill right now or learn this skill right now. That's okay. We can come back to it at a later time. I do believe respiratory is going to put that on their annual comps or their monthly comps. So you might see it again at a later time. Maybe a respiratory therapist can teach it to you at that time or the surgeons. Oh, why are you telling me about a trach? And I'm the one that places it. Well, if you, some surgeons, not all of them, my surgeons know, you show them three different trachs, a cuffed, a fenestrated, and a cuffless. They have, they have no idea the difference. I mean, they, they know what a cuff's for, for a vent but they have no idea the purpose and the benefits of a fenestrated trach. Once you start opening their eyes and their ears to the possibilities and why we use different tracheostomies and the purposes related to speech and swallowing, there's your buy-in. Then they're like, oh, she knows, they know what they're talking about. Like, can we use them as a consultative service? We're no longer just therapists clicking eval and saying goodbye. We're, we're going to be used as a consultative service to help better their patient's quality of life and make their lives easier as surgeons that get that trach in and get it out. So I think that was a huge obstacle and creating the learning environment. So you don't want to force anything on anyone. Um, That's why I think our process took so long. So we wanted to create an educational program to improve overall outcome over time. I think if you ambush people with too much in such a little short time, it's like mini failures. And I didn't want something to go so well and the next week it would fail. So I wanted to give the appropriate time for everything to find its and settle and find its way and groove. And now it's kind of a rudimentary thing and a, what's the word I'm looking for? A 
well-oiled machine per se, speeches on the phone, we're ready to do an inline, let's meet up, or this patient's getting ready to be cannulated, let's put the order. So now it's moving and grooving in a more well-oiled manner. Yeah. I, I think what's so important in this is and, and what I'm learning too, and what I continue to learn and what I continue to teach people too, is just how important it is to sort of speak their language. And I think we get stuck in our language and we get stuck in how we communicate with respiratory therapists. Talk to me about sort of, you said that, you know, they, they said they, or that they didn't know the difference between cuffed, cuffless, fenestrated. What did you say to them to sort of show them the benefits of it for speech and swallowing. If you can just sort of walk me through what that would look like. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um mostly it was a lot of like presentation and like hands-on work and showing them like if we if we had to go to a patient's room, that's one thing. But really like having my talking Tom and kind of explaining this is a valve and this is what it is and showing them the flow of air and kind of showing I like you said in layman terms, like we all are medical professionals and we all know what a trachea is. We know what you know our larynx looks like or but when you start to explain to them, well, this is where the tracheostomy lies in someone's throat and I want them to eat tomorrow, right? For example. Some of us right there was, well, no, they can't eat with a tracheostomy because the cuff's inflated and everything's going to go to the lungs. And once we start like actually just showing them a diagram and kind of explaining the tract and how, why we deflate the cuff or why we're going to, you know, remove the air from that cuff and provide oral trials or put the valve on. I think the concept of an, a one-way valve is very foreign to people and they think that it's the same thing as a cap and we're plugging it. But once you explain to them the airflow and you're still going to breathe perfectly normal, the same breathing rhythm rhythm we normally would, you know, everyone's going to be in the room. Everything's going to be fine. Respiratory was a little bit calmer knowing that family was calmer knowing that the surgeons blown away that there's even a valve to put on someone to allow them to communicate. So I think it's a fine line and a fine dance between making it layman terms, but also making ourselves sound knowledgeable enough that they're like this speech therapist knows what they're talking about or also we can trust her as a consultative service. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for respiratory surgeons, family, I think a really big part of the initiative too, which we kind of harpered on towards the end of our initiative was great. We streamlined processes and we've made protocols and everyone in the hospital is on board, but like, let's not forget the patient and the family member. Yeah. And what we found was it's medically necessary to intubate someone, right? So then that transition to a tracheostomy becomes a little bit fuzzy and family members don't get a really good education on why are we switching the oral tube to a trach? And we sat down collectively as a team and was like, how can we explain this better to family before this procedure happens? So they're less scared of the outcomes and they're more willing to allow us to do this procedure. So we came up with like brochures. We made these beautiful um tracheostomy brochures that had diagrams and showed the difference. And we would bring it to their room before they got tracheostomized or even if it was like during or after. And they were just blown away with like, thank you. Like, this is beautiful. Like you, I can visualize what you're talking about. And now I know it's going to be a tube in the throat and not the mouth. Well, can they still eat? Okay, well, let's just go to the next page. We're going to talk about eating. We're going to talk about breathing. And it was written in layman terms for the family. But um, when we collaborated and made this, we made sure that it was with the understanding that it also was very generalized because we didn't want to be too specific on that. And then the expectations get mushy and they think, well, it said it on here that we were going to do this. So I think it it is a very fine dance between putting things in layman terms, keeping it medical and keeping it very neutral. 
So you don't put expectations too high, but you also have them in the loop and close that communication loop. So everyone on the medical team, including the patient and the family, because that's the patient centered approach. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I love that so much. Thanks. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. So a lot of people ask too, like, well, Rachel, like I'm giving my doctors and my surgeons and my respiratory therapists research and they just, they don't care. They don't want to read it. Um, like, what did you get? What did you do to kind of like spark their interest? Cause my interest is already sparked. Like I'm ready to go. Let's do it. They're just not buying it. So like, again, with the presentation of the binders, we don't have all day to make a million binders. So I would just like slide articles under people's doors. No, but really when we're having a conversation with someone, I would throw some facts out there and they're just like, where'd you get that from? So, I mean, just some of the research supporting initiatives go back extremely far. They go back into the early 2000s, like 2008, 2007. And they start basically just by reporting. And if you look at different facets of care, you can look at like quality of life. You can look at length of stay. You can look at decannulation. You can find what article is going to be my driving force in my facility. If they're super honed in on reducing days in the ICU, right? So maybe we want to go look at like Tobin and Santa Marta's article saying that there was 50% reduction in time in ICU. It went from 14 days to seven. Maybe that's going to be your selling point. Or if not, maybe you want to talk about length of stay, right? So Cameron and et al. in 2009 found the length of stay decreased from 60 days to 41.5 days. And they tell you, no, no, Rachel, we want, we're, we want to harper on communication because our metric and our hospital says, that patients in the ICU need to be verbally communicating. Okay, great. I got a metric for you on that one. Cameron et al. also in 2009 said that they, the use of Passimur significantly increased or a speaking valve significantly increased from 35% to 82% with the implementation of an initiative or a trait team. It improves the patient's ability to, or, to verbally communicate with their loved ones. Or what I like to say is actually participate in their plan of care, actually speak to their medical providers We'll pop a valve on and they say, no, I don't want that procedure done. Or, hi, my name is so on and so forth, and I'm in pain. So I think it's huge that if you can provide these little tidbits of information and have them on the tip of your tongue, they they really, the buy-in will come because they know that there's literature out there, but people just don't know how to find the literature. They don't know where to look or go for literature. Well, you can be the mode of them finding the literature. It's going to come out of you. You're going to spit it out. And I just think that also really heightens our skills as a ther- as a speech pathologist and kind of brings light to the different areas that we can be involved in. We don't just evaluate speech and language. We don't only evaluate dysphagia. Like we can improve this patient's vocal quality. We can improve their quality of life. We can get them home sooner, all encompassed in our skill set. Yeah. I had a, a doctor the other day that was telling me, oh, but like, we're just doing this to like reduce adverse events, right? Like that already looks bad for a hospital. Why? And I, and then I, you know, threw an article out him. Okay. Well, Parker at all 2007 said that making a team like this, a multidisciplinary team. Yes, you're right. We want to reduce adverse event, but after implementing this uh, multidisciplinary team, they saw a reduction from 32% of patients who had tube dislodgements or obstructions, it went down to 24%. So if you want to buy into your safety side, there's your article. If you want to buy into the length of stay side, you can have an article. If you want to buy into quality of life, you have your article. So I think it just really depends on who's going to be your point person, who's going to be your go-to people, and who's going to support you, who's going to get the buy-in that you're providing. If you find that they're not reciprocating 
the passion, then maybe move on to the next person. Um, like I say, be pleasantly persistent and yeah. keep persistently showing that you're an advocate for this population and what you can do for them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And we are going to stop this conversation right here. We decided to split this episode up into part into two parts. So check back in next week for part two of this conversation where we dive into the actual research and writing this up as a manuscript for publication on a trait team. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.